Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 100 and we've reached 1828. For my listeners who've lasted a century of podcasts, thank you folks. The series has exceeded my expectations. I thought perhaps a few people would respond and that would be that. But no, this series has managed to climb six places on Apple's South African podcast top 20. We're now at 16 on the hit parade. Sorry, this sounds very self-important and probably is. It's just so exciting to see how many people are interested in this unique place called South Africa with its crazy paving history and characters that Edgar Allan Poe wouldn't dream up in a thousand years. So with that slightly self-important note, let's head back to 1828. Lord Charles Somerset's perfidious tenure had ended that period of post-Napoleonic nepotism. In Liverpool, the centre of the trading world in the first half of the 19th century, laissez-faire oceanic liberalism had raised its genteel bewigged head. The principle of free trade was growing, and in conjunction with this new economic free trade, a kind of radical liberalism was surging. It was the time of a new philosophy of the rights of the human individual. This is no small matter, as Adam Smith would agree. You could argue that if it wasn't for Dr. John Philip with two P's and one L and no S, South African history would be quite different. By the second half of the 1820s, the majority of the Khoikhoi had no other employment than as farm labourers, mainly for the Trekboers. Dr. John had summed up the situation in the Cape, and his grim memorandum had led to the establishment of a commission of inquiry. He was fighting for what he called the emancipation of the wretched Aborigines of South Africa. If you remember an earlier podcast, Dr. John Philip had single-handedly convinced Sir Rufain Duncan, the acting governor, to take action to protect the Khoikhoi labourers from abuse they were suffering on farms. Dr. John had returned to England by the mid-1820s, and he was a force of nature, persuading the public there that they should enjoin him in the mission to ensure that all men and women living in southern Africa should be regarded as equal. Of course, while he railed against injustice in the tea houses of Liverpool, the British government was still trying to keep the Khoikhoi away from the English settlers around Grahamstown. They were trying to enforce a kind of separate development. Only at the mission stations were the Khoikhoi free in any sense of the term, and many still went out to work on nearby Dutch farms, and more discreetly the English farms, but they were being closely supervised and doing so by the missionaries. Equal rights to all persons of colour, was Dr. John's refrain. You must understand, and I'm sure you do, that this concept in 1828 was startling to most Europeans who heard it. The day would surely come, he said, when the magical power of caste will be broken and all classes of the inhabitants blended into one community. Dr. John Phillips saw something else very clearly, and it wasn't about human conditions, it was about economic conditions. He was aware that the bureaucrats and the settlers, the Trekboers, did not think of the Amakosa and the Khoikhoi as consumers, just as labourers. No, he stood back from this and realised that when the Khoikhoi and all the others in the society could work or trade freely and without restraint of colour, the backward and impoverished colony would raise itself by creating an expanded market internally, as well as a larger market for British manufacturers. Extraordinary, really. 
Dr. John was on a mission all right, and before taking his new struggle back to England, he had taken a grand tour of the Cape and Transorangia. When he returned to England, he was to face a fairly sobering and dispiriting time. The London Missionary Society greeted him with a banquet and then quietly allowed his new message to dissipate into the wind. And so he sought out like-minded radical thinkers and found Thomas Fowell Buxton. As a child, Buxton was described as having a daring, violent, domineering temper, which sounds like most kids I've met, and these qualities apparently he learned from his mother. That's what his biographer says, so please don't tweet me. I'm just passing on the details. But he also learned his brilliant oratory skills, his clear vision, and his belief in making a difference from his mother too. Nevertheless, Dr. John and Thomas Buxton met in 1826, and by April 1828, the good doctor had published a book in two volumes entitled Researchers in South Africa. And this is where a lot of troubles started, at least according to the colonists back in South Africa. Pro-settler historian George Corey said later that probably no book on South African affairs has ever raised such public feeling as this one did. The people of England regarded the volumes as an accurate description of life in South Africa, while in the Cape, the settlers regarded it with abhorrence and disgust. Dr. John was demonized, to put it mildly. But the English Parliament MPs read the volumes too. At least enough of them read them to pass new laws without opposition. Something had to be done about the routes of the Khoikhoi, they said. And now, in 1828, a new model Cape colony laced with constitutional change came into being. The Cape morphed into a British-designed colony, and Major General Sir Richard Bourke arrived with the title of Lieutenant Governor, supposedly of a new territory called Eastern Province. It wasn't to be. He ended up replacing the resplendent Lord Charles Somerset as acting governor of the Cape, and the Eastern Province concept dissolved, at least for now. André Stockenström was no longer the Landrost of Graf Reinet, the British had given him a new title. He was the Commissioner General of the Frontier, and his new seat was in Utenhague. This Afrikaner was one of two colonists appointed to the new Advisory Council, which helped govern the colony. He was in his middle thirties now, and during Dr. John Phillips' great trek around the Cape, they'd both spent many days together arguing and debating about the rights of the Khoikhoi. And miraculously, and so it was, in April 1828, four months after being installed as Commissioner-General, Stockenström sent a memorandum to Major General Bork in Cape Town about the Khoikhoi and recommended precisely what Dr. John Philip had been suggesting, a law that would sweep away all restrictions on the Khoikhoi and put them on an equal footing with the colonists. Gasp! You can imagine the sound of muskets being dropped in shock, heads shaken... Brows lowered, faces glowered, dogs were kicked, glass broke. Not only did Stockenstrom's memo suggest rights, he went further and said the new law should include all free inhabitants without reference to colour or name of the tribe. That meant he included the Amakosa living in the Cape. Stockenstrom wrote this in the same month that Dr. John published his volumes far away in England, had Facebook existed back in this day, the conspiracy goons would have self-immolated. On the 17th of July, 1828, Bork sat with the council and passed the law that Stockenstrom had proposed. That was only two days after Thomas Buxton's motion was accepted in the British House of Commons. 
that whites and blacks should be made equal before the law in the Cape. This was before the telegraph. Messages still took at least eight weeks to travel between Liverpool and Cape Town. Extraordinary, isn't it, how history works? And this law, of course, didn't so much ripple across the colony as flooded like a tsunami. 6,000 miles apart and ignorant of each other's actions, these two men, one a British liberal and the other an Afrikaner administrator of Swedish origin, had managed to achieve the same objective. Ordinance 50 was now on the statute books, and back in the English House of Commons, the new law passed in almost complete silence. Those MPs were far more interested in the Catholic question and rubber-stamped what was a revolutionary concept, virtually unopposed. This was the first time since the Dutch had arrived and the Khoikhoi had splintered in the Cape that they had real freedom. On the 15th of January 1829, Ordinance 50 was ratified at Westminster as an order in council. What that means is the law enacted at the Cape was now beyond the power of any subsequent government in the Cape to repeal or amend it without British Parliament sanctioning the changes. So, dear listener, you can imagine how this law was to create an earthquake, not just a tsunami, back in the Cape, particularly amongst the Boers and the British settlers. While Ordinance 50 was seen as the greatest achievement of humanitarianism since the slave trade was abolished in 1807 by the chattering classes, the colonials were dumbstruck by just how radical it was. Most colonists regarded blacks as distinctly unequal to whites. Here was an Afrikaner of Swedish parentage called Stockenström and a Scots evangelical missionary called Philip launching laws about equality. This was almost 40 years before the American Civil War, which as we know was largely about slavery. My, what a lot of time we waste. That's what makes South African history both frustrating and wondrous. Here was a real attempt to create an interracial state. It was even more bizarre because in 1828, slavery in the Cape was still legal. The trade was illegal, but owning slaves was not. So here was a new law declaring there would be no discrimination on the basis of color of race in the Cape, where people were still enslaved. It was a slave-owning society. This is what makes the ordinance such a shocker. It anticipated the imminent emancipation of slaves, but was really a measure imposed from outside upon a hostile colony. Ordinance 50 lasted all the way until 1910, when the Cape was incorporated into a new South Africa, the Union. Then the law was changed and the entrenched principle of protecting all races as a form of justice was thrown out in the interests of white cohesion after the Anglo-Boer War. Back in 1828, Ordinance 50 sent the shockwave across the colony. The farmers and the townsfolk demonized Stockensroom, they feared a wave of crime and social dislocation was imminent as the Khoi Khoi abandoned the Boer farms and took to the road to exercise their ancient right to wander upon the landscape. It didn't quite happen that way. The Khoi Khoi response was restrained, knowing that the reality on the ground was very different to some bureaucrat in Cape Town passing an ordinance. They had no power, no possessions. They were beholden to the farmers. They had no land. The colonists employed them and therefore that was the only way they could subsist. Freedom was relative, whatever the British humanitarian may have thought. For the Boers, they cast their minds back to Slachtersneck. You remember that terrible tale, I'm sure. 
Andri Stockenström had been the Landrost who was involved in that botched execution of five Boer rebels where the ropes had snapped and where Stockenström had gone ahead and ordered new rope and hanged them despite the unspoken rule that a snapped rope could lead to the commutation of sentence. Then he hanged another Boer for killing a Khoi Khoi a little later and that clinched his demonization amongst the Trek Boers and the colonists. At first, on the distant frontier, Ordinance 50 was just a talking point to be commented on, mentioned over coffee and biscuit, along with the usual complaints about the English. It reinforced the new restlessness of spirit amongst the Boers. Many began to seek out hunters and then listened with glowing eyes at the stories about the interior of Africa beckoning to an independent people like a candle to a moth. They spoke again of Kunrat the base, as well as the Besaidnote family, the mixed-race Yonk Afrikaners, the stories full of the freedom of the felt, distant lands covered in grass for their herds, friendly African tribes. When they looked around the Cape, it was now full of an invading people called the English, who had imposed a new language on the Boers, new customs. They were now being hanged by the officials when they had escaped sanction for the assaults on the Khoikhoi laborers. And to top it all off, Ordinance 50 made their laborers equal to them, these heathens were now Christians. It was too much. Back in Stellenbosch and Swellendam and Ceres and Worcester, the landowners, to put it bluntly, had a fit. The law had obvious implications for the major slave owners around here, and hatred for Dr. John Philip and his researches into South Africa was so intense that when he returned for a visit, he had a VIP bodyguard of missionaries. Meanwhile, Stockenstrom was enemy number two. In Grahamstown, the settlers, who were always a noisy lot there, now became apoplectic. Never mind that they weren't allowed to possess slaves, nor were they allowed to hire Khoi Khoi. The original British plan that this white enclave would hire only white labourers had fallen by the wayside. There were many cases of 1820 settlers being hauled before the magistrate for withholding pay from Khoi Khoi workers, along with the Boers. So you'd think Dr. John Philip and the Stockenstrom Ordinance would have been ignored. But no, they railed as passionately against the new ideas as their Boer brethren. The reason was simple. The Amakosa were doing the usual raiding of the herds, and the 1820 settlers had slipped into the same mental mode as the Trek Boers when it came to race relations. Researchers in South Africa, Volumes 1 and 2, were a calumny against themselves as much as against the Boers, as Noel Mostad writes. Because Dr. John was no wallflower, he headed to Grahamstein to try and intercede in the matters involving the Amakosa, now that he had apparently solved the human rights issue around the Khoikhoi. He wasn't alone. Other forces were at play, and they were religious. The Wesleyans in particular, led by William Shaw, had begun a sustained attack on the Amakosa way of life, similar to what was happening in Australia and in America at the time. Amakosa culture and customs were the problem, said the missionaries. They wanted these ancient practices obliterated. Shaw confronted an Amakosa man, announcing that the custom of the country is nothing. The law of God is greater than any custom. Which is an interesting logic, particularly as technically speaking, the concept of Christianity is far younger than Amakosa ancient cosmology. But Shaw was a very busy chap. Within two years, he'd set up mission stations throughout Amakosa territory, all the way to the Mzumvubu River, virtually Sharkaland. The Amakosa responded warily, as you can imagine. 
Remember, the first whites who had arrived, the Boers, had attached themselves to the Amatkosa way, not the other way around. The Boers lived at their kraals and never sought to question the Amatkosa way of life. And in fact, many lived like the Amatkosa did. Here came the proselytizers who were vehement critics of African life and worse, they were installed inside Amatkosa territory. When Shaw arrived at Hinsa's great place, the grand chief of the Tkaleka, he refused to allow the mission to take root until he had consulted Ingwika of the Rarabi and Pato of the Kulnukwebe. This would take a while, said Hinsa, a classic Amatkosa political ploy of the age. He was a shrewd twister of time. First, Ingwika made himself scarce, buying even more time. When Shaw eventually tracked him down, Ngrika said Hinsa was avoiding an innovation and should be schooled. Another classic ploy, when faced with a direct question, blame the other clan. However, Ngrika said he would think about it for a while. Shaw gave him a few days, then returned. Ngrika looked at his hands and said, You must not think this any trifling affair. Hinsa is a very great man. I cannot send him a careless message. Two more weeks were needed for his counsellors to gather and pontificate about the possible placement of a Wesleyan mission station. A month later, Shaw returned and was flabbergasted. Ngrika had reached a decision. The missionaries should write to the King of England on Ngrika's behalf and then send him a handsome white woman for a wife in exchange for this new mission station. Shaw reminded Ngrika about his view of polygamy. Then... Just to rub it in, Ingrika ordered the newly circumcised youths to dance naked before them, along with the almost naked woman. After Shaw survived that night, on his knees, fending off naughty thoughts, Ingrika said he would go visit Pato of the Kulnukwebi, followed by a visit to Uncle Inslambe, who you know well. Ingrika devised a complex plan. The other two Amatkosa chiefs would send messengers to his messenger who would meet somewhere, and then all send a joint message to Hinsa. The complexity was just part of Ngrika's plan to waste more time. Patu and Ntlambi eventually sent their responses, whereupon Ngrika decided that their message was too frivolous and refused to send his messenger to Hinsa. Poor old Shaw was tearing his missionary hair out and wrote patronizingly that it was strange that a people in the very rudest state of society should demonstrate so much of craft and policy. Of course, it's one of the biggest mistakes you can make, even to this day, to confuse education with intelligence. Some of the dumbest people I've met in 60 years on planet Earth have PhDs, and some of the cleverest can't write their names. So eventually, after more weeks of palavering and hints going walkabout, the Wesleyans were granted permission to build their mission station at Butterworth in the Transkai. And it was at this mission, at Butterworth, that shortly afterwards, in September 1828, our friend John Kane arrived on his overland trip from Sharka, seeking a new alliance for the Zulu king from the British. That was in our last episode, and with that little circle closed, it's time to end this episode. Next, we'll hear how the English settlers at Port Natal were faring now, after Sharka's death, and how Mzilikazi had congealed a conglomeration of warriors into a feared force along the upper Val River. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. You can head off to the website, desmondlatham.blog, and email me from there. And if you want to contact me quicker through Twitter, it's at Des Latham. Until next, Tsalang Sintli.